0: ...with me this morning and open to Revelation chapter 17. Revelation 17, we continue to work our way through the book of Revelation, 27 messages in total. This morning marks 21 of 27, so we're we're getting there. This morning our sermon text is going to be chapter 17, uh, the entire chapter. And for the public reading of the Word, I, I do want to read through the entire chapter. So if you turn there... Revelation 17, would you stand one more time so that we might honor the reading of God's word this morning? Revelation chapter 17, John, being inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with uh, the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away into the spirit, into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads, ten horns. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings. Five of whom have fallen. One is the other. One is the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast who was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind and hand over their power and authority to the beast. They'll make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw were the Prostitute is seated, are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They'll make her desolate and naked and devour the, her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out His purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Do you remain standing? we pray. Father, Lord, we confess now that we need your help. Lord, this is a a difficult text, one that's not immediately clear to us. So we ask that you would open our eyes and open our minds and Hearts, ears, give us ears to hear and eyes to see, hearts to love your word, a mind to understand it, hands and feet that want to obey it. Lord, would you do all that you desire to do in this time? And Lord, as we've studied through this book, it's become even more and more apparent that we do indeed have an enemy. It was like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So we pray in this moment that you would keep the evil one from us. We know for unbelievers here his desires that the word that is preached, that, that he might pluck up the seed of the word before it ever take root in their hearts. We know that he blinds the eyes of the unbeliever from seeing the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would bind him, that you would let the word penetrate our hearts. We pray that unbelievers' eyes would be open to the gospel, that they might repent and believe. We pray for uh, believers as we press on in, in persevering and in fighting and in longing to fight well, to run the race, to win the prize, that you would encourage us and empower us by your word to persevere in holding fast to the faith. Our faith in your Son, who is the Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In 1941, the British captured a U-boat. But it wasn't just the boat that was the great treasure, it's that on the boat there was a cipher machine, a machine that would allow them to decode the enemy's cryptid messages. This cipher machine allowed them then to understand of the British or the, rather of the German ships, the, the number of ships they had, their patrol, their location, these kinds of things. It gave them a great upper hand. They, they took this intelligence and they passed it on to other Allied commanders under the codename Ultra. And according to one source, Winston Churchill told the king after the war that Ultra, this intelligence was the reason they had been able to win the war. Now, in one sense, that, that may sound a bit odd. After all, when you think of going to a war, the, the things that, that seem to matter most on the front are, let's make sure we have superior soldiers and numbers and ability, superior weaponry, again, in numbers and, and capability, uh, uh, and the like. But here, Churchill says, was intelligence. It was something we knew, something we knew about the enemy's schemes, about the enemy's plans, about, about his means of attack. That is the reason we won the war. Of course, if you think more about it, that's not all surprising at all, is it? And imagine you're engaged in a war and you know what your enemy is going to do before he does it. You know his schemes. You know his plans. You know what he's going about and you know how he's going to about trying to do it. You know the timing of what he's going to enact. If you knew that information, it's no reason, there's there's no doubt, It's, it's not a mystery why in the world Churchill would say this is utterly important. This is crucial information. I think that picture is very much what we find in Revelation 17. If you were just to sum up what's going on in this chapter, here's what I think it is. The Lord is revealing to us the enemy's plans, his schemes, and his demise, so that we might be encouraged to press on and persevere and overcome. I I think that's what's going on. If you wanted to sum up the chapter... Jesus Christ is revealing to his people the enemy's schemes, his plans, and his ultimate demise so that we might be encouraged to persevere, to overcome, to hold fast to our faith. Now, that is simple enough. I think we understand that. The reason it's complicated for us is, as I've said throughout the book, one, we're a number of years away from the setting in which Revelation was written. So we we don't necessarily feel Rome the same way that the original readers would have heard it. When we hear uh, that this woman is seated on seven mountains in the first century, they've said, well, of course, Rome is the city founded on seven hills. There would have been some instant uh, reference point for them. We're separated by a lot of distance. And as I've said from the very beginning, it's written in a literary form or genre we're not familiar with, apocalyptic, which is heavy on symbolism. So it's not obvious to us right off the bat all the points that this text is making because it seems to be clouded in the mystery of symbols. So here's then what I want to do for us this morning. First, I want to just try to identify what I think is the key symbol in this chapter. And it's this woman, this prostitute. Then I want to lay out what I think is then the meaning. What is then he telling us here? What do we, why do we need to know about this woman? And then finally, I want to end with just two reminders that we need to keep in mind as we fight to hold fast to the faith. So let's first just start on this note of identity, just the identity of this woman. The text starts out in chapter 17, verse 1, with one of the angels that we saw in chapters 15 and 16. Remember, there were seven angels, they had seven bowls. this was God's final wrath being poured out on the earth. Well, now we have one of those seven angels, verse 1. Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls, came to me and said, so, so here's the, it's the main thesis, then, that we're, or the main theme that we're going to see over the next few chapters. He said, come, to John, come, I'll show you the judgment of the great prostitute, who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of earth have committed sexual morality, and with the wine of whose sexual morality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. So our first question then is, who in the world is this woman, this great prostitute? Now it's helpful that we've come to this point in the book because we've seen some of this imagery before. So when you have this language of a woman who is who is letting the nations or the kings of the earth become drunk on her wine, the wine of her sexual morality, we've seen this before. Look back at chapter 14. Look at verse 8. In Revelation chapter 14, verse 8, what we've heard earlier is an angel make another statement, an announcement. Here, here's what we find in verse 8, of chapter 14: Another angel, a second, followed, saying, "Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual morality." So we see these elements here again. You have a woman making the nations drink of the wine. Of her sexual morality. But here specifically, she's called Babylon. And what we said at the time was that at this point in history, Babylon is not some kind of key player on the world stage. They're off the world stage. They're just off the scene. But Babylon is used throughout the text as a symbol, as a type, as a a representative. When When you read the Old Testament, Babylon is a great enemy of God. The Babylonians took the Lord's people captive, oppressed them. Uh, The Babylonians actually called upon the Lord's people to worship false gods. Remember the story of of Nebuchadnezzar uh, calling upon uh, the people of Israel to bow down before the great statue? Well, this was just a common uh, thing in the Old Testament. They're always luring the people away as the very captives of God's people, always luring them away from God and from devotion to Him and from faithfulness to Him to actually devote themselves to false gods. And so Babylon then, because it played that role in the Old Testament, just becomes a symbol of any nation, any state, any, any institution, any person who might do that, then is labeled Babylon. In the first century, at the time uh, Revelation is being written, they would have looked and said, Rome is the latest installment of Babylon. And they would have been exactly right. So in Revelation 17, when we come back to it, we can say, well, this, this woman here is Babylon, according to chapter 14. And I think that's only confirmed to us when we get to the end of chapter 17. I mean, look at the very last verse of the chapter. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Again, at that time, that would have been Rome. And even in verse 5, we can see she's called Babylon, right? It's chapter 17, verse 5. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. So you can say at this point, well then it seems then that that this woman represents Babylon or or in the latest installment of Babylon, Rome at this time. So the woman represents Rome. But let's stop there just for a second and point out the identity of something else. Something else we've known before. So this is just by way of reminder. The beast is also mentioned in this text. You see see him first of all in verse 3. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. Now we saw the beast described in that exact same way back in chapter 13. We see the beast again uh, mentioned in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 17. When when the angel says to John, why do you marvel? I'll tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not, and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth, a, a phrase in the Revelation that always means unbelievers, and the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. Now just by way of reminder, you, remember what we said about this beast in Revelation chapter 13. It's the beast is the symbol of any oppressive state or institution or social structure and anything like this that Satan, con- concrete examples in history, that Satan uses to oppress and persecute the Lord's people. So uh, the beast you might say, one installment of the beast throughout the entire age was Egypt and the Old Testament. Another installment of the beast would have been Babylon. Again, and and the time that Revelation's written, the latest installment of the beast at that time would have been Rome. And this idea of the beast being one who was and is not and is to come is the same idea we saw from Revelation 13, that the beast had a mortal wound and yet was living. The, The idea is that there will be times in history when the beast is and then he'll be cast down. So again, take Egypt. I mean, Egypt was a world power, and then Egypt was thrown down. Does that mean the beast is done? He was and is not. Well, no, there's only going to be another rendition of the beast in history. Here comes Babylon. And then Babylon's done. So as, so as that is, the beast done. Well, no, here comes Rome. And, and so on and so forth throughout the ages, so that people are continually uh, watching the beast who was and is not rise again. They're watching, again, concrete historical examples used by Satan to oppress and persecute the Lord's people. Again, the latest installment of the beast is Rome. But now we have a problem, don't we? If the beast symbolizes Rome and transcends Rome throughout all the ages, all the manifestations of the beast, and this prostitute, this harlot, this sexually immoral woman, is Rome, and more than Rome, so that she's seen across the ages as well, then how in the world can the beast and the prostitute both be Rome when they're clearly distinct in this text? The woman and the beast are distinct, aren't they? We're told uh, in verse 3. Of chapter 17, he carried me away in the spirit in the wilderness, and I saw a young woman. I saw a woman rather sitting on a scarlet beast. So the woman is sitting on the beast. She's not the beast. She's sitting on the beast. It's Distinct. Well, here's what I think is going on. You'll remember back in chapter 11. Remember this interesting scene where John's first given kind of his first hands-on task, and he's told to go go, and he sees this temple in the courtyard of the temple. And you'll remember. He measures out a part of the temple, part of the courtyard. And and the Lord says, that part's measured out, but, but don't measure out the other part. Leave that part not measured. That part is going to be trampled on the Gentiles for 42 months. And what we said at the time was that didn't symbolize two groups of people. As if some in the church, the temple, the people of God, some in the church will be guarded while others in the church will be persecuted. That's not the message. It's not the message of the Bible. Right? If anyone desires to live godly in Christ Jesus, he will bear persecution. Right? So it's not like part of the church is persecuted and parts going to be fine. Rather, what that text was showing us is two aspects that are true of the same group of people. What I said at the time is, the people of God are going to be vulnerable to the persecution of the enemy, and they're going to be invincible. They're going to be kept and guarded and preserved by Satan. We're going to be attacked and persecuted. We're going to be preserved. We're going to be vulnerable, but we're going to be invincible. Again, two aspects of the same person. In fact, later on in chapter 11, by bringing up the two witnesses, John was just showing us a third aspect of the church. As the church is being persecuted and preserved, they're going to be preaching the gospel. I think what you find then in Revelation 17 is the same reality. The reason that the beast and the woman... Would both have been understood in the minds of the original readers to, to, to represent Rome, though they're distinct, is because what the beast and what the woman represent are two different aspects of Rome itself. Two different aspects of, of the state or the structure that, that Satan is using to oppose the Lord's people. The beast, that metaphor, is used for the Lord to show us that Satan will use at times throughout the history of the age, he will raise up the state or or social structures or something like this, an institution, and he will attack the Lord's people through violent oppression and persecution. That's what Rome was doing in the day. The Caesars were at times calling upon the people of God to deny Jesus Christ or be killed. That's one aspect of Satan's attack to physically and violently oppress and threaten the Lord's people. Remember, the false prophet was just another aspect. Also, sometimes as the state is, is raising up and violently oppressing and persecuting the Lord's people, there will be voices along that say, get on board. Get on board. It's not that bad. You can sacrifice truth. This, this voice of falsehood, that's another avenue that Satan was going to use to try to turn against God's people. Violent oppression and false teaching. When the woman, we find yet another aspect of his attack. He's going to seduce. In other words, Satan doesn't simply have one game plan. His game plan isn't I'm going to come at the people of God with violence and oppression, and I'll wear them down. That's an effective strategy, but that's not it. That's what the beast represents. But he also says, I'm going to come at the people with the false prophet. I'm going to come at them with with false teaching, with deceptive teaching that says things like, listen, if you don't change and get on board with what the people out there who are unbelievers are doing, you're never going to reach them. And other kind of false teachings like that, whereby the people of God are are lured away into false teaching. That's another game plan Satan's going to use. But there's a third right here in Revelation 17. There's going to be much in our culture... That seduces us like a prostitute. Again, just notice this this imagery of how the woman is spoken of as if she is tempting them with sexual immorality. Verse 2. We're we're, we're told of this great prostitute with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and and with uh, the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. Look at verse 4. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. She looks very ravishing here, right? This is, this is to be an attractive woman. And in her hand is a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. In verse 5, the name written on her head is Babylon the great, mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abomination. Clearly, this woman is pictured as a prostitute, Because as uh, the father teaches his son in the book of Proverbs, she is very appealing on the outside. But stay away, for she leads to death. This is another way that Satan is going to work. So who is this woman? Who is the harlot? Who is the great prostitute in the text? I think the identity of the woman is simply another aspect of how Satan is going to use People in the world, institutions, states, whatever, to seduce the people of God to come away from Him, to walk away from Him. So therefore, we can say this. If you want to go to point two, the meaning then of this point is, as I said, just as Satan will use oppressive states to oppose God's people, so he'll provide ways to seduce them to turn from Christ. Again, this is just another aspect of how Satan's going to work throughout the age. The one who is a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, will devour some with the sword. He will devour others with seduction. Devour some with the sword, he will devour others with seduction. This, this great prostitute who is leading others into sexual morality, we shouldn't see sexual morality as being literally sexual morality. Though sexual morality is a way many people are led away from Christ. But the reason the image of a prostitute or sexual morality is used is because it's picking up on an Old Testament theme. Again, we've seen this throughout the book. In the Old Testament, the people of God were to be pictured as the bride of the Lord. Right? The Lord had taken them. He says in the book of Ezekiel, You were like a a girl stranded and abandoned on the side of the road, naked in your blood. And and I took you and I cleansed you. And and when you came of age, I took you and, and betrothed you to myself, married you to myself. You were my bride. And yet every time Israel was unfaithful, sought after other gods, committed idolatry, the Lord didn't say, you're idolaters. Though He did say that, He said more. He said, you're adulterers. You've engaged in sexual morality. You're like a prostitute. You should be faithful to your husband, but when you chase after other gods, when you chase after your sin, you're being sexually immoral. Well, that's the picture here. The reason that that, that the state of Satan's use here and his weapon of seduction is called sexual morality is because what it represents is anything Satan uses to lure us away from faithfulness to Jesus Christ, who is the groom of the bride, the church, the husband of the church. This book is going to end with a wedding feast. The lamb and the bride of the lamb being wed. And at this point, one of the things that Jesus Christ is telling his church at this point and throughout the ages is, one of the attacks of Satan will be that he will attempt to seduce you and lead you away to walk away from Jesus Christ. It may be with a very literal temptation of sexual morality, but it may also be with the temptation to riches, the temptation to seek after fame the temptation to seek after power, all these kinds of temptations that that are seductive, that that look great and, and inviting and beautiful on the outside. And yet when you go down that road, they're terrible and destroy. So this, I think, is the meaning of Revelation 17. He's simply unveiling the enemy's schemes and his plans. Here's another thing the enemy's going to use. So let me then end this morning with two reminders. Reminder number one. The harlot or the prostitute, whatever you want to call her. The harlot's seductive schemes are meant to make war against Christ. The harlot's seductive schemes are meant to make war against Christ. Now the reason I'm making you this reminder is really the same reason that the father in the book of Proverbs tells his sons how devastating and how destructive this prostitute is, this adulterous woman is again she looks very good from the outside the reason that, that, that Solomon has to sit with the signs or remember, in the book of Proverbs and say to them, I want you to know how bad the adulterous woman is is because she looks good she's inviting, she's like honey to the lips this is the way sin is, isn't it It would not be tempting if there weren't an appeal with fame. If sexual morality weren't appealing, if riches and power weren't appealing, then they wouldn't be tempting. But they are appealing, they look good on the outside. And so what I want to do in these final two things, because I think this is what the chapter does, is let's just unveil it for a bit. Let's, let's, let's peel back the cover for a bit and look at this in its real light. And one of the things we need to realize is that when we pursue sexual morality, when we pursue power at the expense of obedience to Christ, we pursue riches, we pursue fame, we pursue so many other areas of rebellion against Christ that when we pursue them, just open your eyes to this point. What you're doing is you're getting in on Satan's schemes that are meant to make war against Christ now let me show you this in the text we've already seen that the woman is, is sitting on this beast in and, and verse 6 in verse 7 uh, we're told that uh, John is told not to marvel he's telling I want to tell you the mystery of the woman the seven heads the ten horns the beast that you saw we've already gone over that look at then verse 9 this calls for a mind with wisdom the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Again, anyone in the first century would have heard that and said, Rome is the city on seven mountains or seven hills. I think this, at that time, the manifestation of this beast was Rome. But the seven heads don't simply represent seven mountains. Verse 10, there are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other is not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. Now, at this point, or we'll go on and read verse 11. As for the beast that was and is, is not, uh, it is an eighth that belongs to the seventh and it goes to destruction. Now some have seen this and said what Jesus wanted his church to know in the first century is the exact number of Roman emperors that were to come. So that they could sit and say, okay, let's see. If we start at Julius Caesar or whomever, wherever they start and we count. Okay, there have been five have fallen and now there's a sixth. Now there's a seventh, and then there's going to be an eighth, and he'll be like the seven, but he's going to come later. And so, okay, we have three more emperors to do, and then the Roman Empire is going to be done. But I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. One reason I don't think he's saying is because it would have been incredibly hard to figure out. I mean, who do you start with? Commentators disagree. It's amazing if you pick up commentaries on this verse, the people that want to go this route have all kinds of lists, and every one of them differ. Some of them say, you start with Caesar, uh, Julius Caesar. Some of them say, well, after Nero, there were really three emperors. So if you count all three of them, then it would have gone this way. And others say, only count the important ones. So it's really hard. I don't think that's what's going on here. Again, I think think our default should be, when you see numbers in the book of Revelation, almost without exception, and maybe without exception, they're used in a figurative way. The number seven we've seen throughout the book is used for, for completeness. I think what Jesus is saying when he points out the fact that there are seven kings and yet more to come is he's saying throughout this entire age Satan will raise up individuals to oppress the Lord's people. Remember why this is done? Because Satan was cast out of heaven and heaven celebrated. Satan no longer gets to stand before the throne and accuse God's people and heaven rejoiced. Remember the scene in chapter 12? Heaven rejoiced but the angel said but woe to the earth and sea. Because Satan was cast down out of heaven, but now he is coming after the Lord's people. And throughout the age, he is going to raise up kings. He's going to raise up peoples, states, social structures uh, to persecute. And I think what Jesus is saying here is, listen, this is going to last throughout the age. It seems that there's going to be one climactic manifestation of this. One climactic manifestation of the beast at the end, this, this eighth. But when he says five have already fallen, he doesn't mean them to start counting emperors. What he's saying to them is this. This is going to last throughout the entire age, but I have news for you. There is going to be an end. There's going to be an end to this. We're already throughout this time. The the, the time of Satan raising up individuals to persecute the Lord's people is not going to go on forever. Five have already fallen. The end is coming. That's what he wants them to know. It's going to be throughout the age, but there is going to be an end. When he says in verses uh, 12 through 14, these ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind and hand over their power and authority to the beast. They'll make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He's Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who call Him and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. I don't think he mentions these ten kings because we're to think of something entirely different. Than we just saw in verses. Nine through 11. I think that 10, ten kings largely represent the same reality. That, again, 10 kings, throughout the age, Satan is going to raise up individuals. There, there are some who are yet to come, these kings who have not yet received authority, but when they do, they're going to hand their authority over to the beast, and he's going to persecute the lamb and the Lord's people. Basically, what I want us to see here is the lamb, or rather is the dragon is the beast, is Satan's design. Why does Satan do everything he does? Because he hates the Lord Jesus Christ and he's making war against Him. Right? That's what the text says. That's what this all builds up to. They hand their power over to the beast, verse 13, and they will make war on the Lamb. Why does Satan blind the minds of unbelievers and exercise his influence on them in this age? Why does he do it? He does it because he's making war on the Lamb. He's making war on the Lamb's people. What I want us to see about the seduction of sin is when you and I rebel against Jesus Christ and we run after fame, and we run after riches, and we run after power, and we run after sexual immorality, and you can name it and keep going down the manifestations of sin in our lives. When we do that, don't be deceived. We are engaging in war against the Lamb. That's what Satan's doing. In other words, you may think, you know, I'm gossiping about someone, but I really don't think it's that big of a deal. And what, what you're doing is playing into the very plan and scheme of Satan to make war on the Lamb. Or, or let's make it a bit extra. Because you could say, you know, when you gossip, I mean, you really are hurting somebody else. Well, let's, let's just devote it to something that seems like it only affects us. What about when we chase after our lusts? By pursuing pornography. And you could very much argue, and that's just affecting me. It's not really a big deal. What this text reminds us of is when we're seduced into that kind of sin, we're playing into Satan's scheme of making war on the lamb. When we chase after a certain body image and therefore abuse ourselves, By either starving ourselves or sometimes gorging and throwing up food. It's just common, right? We have to bury our heads in the sand and say that men and women across our nation aren't struggling with lust and chasing after unrealistic superficial body images. This is just real, isn't it? And it seems like in each of those cases that we're just hurting ourselves. It seems like it just affects us. But Revelation 17 is showing us a bigger picture. No, these are Satan's schemes because he hates the Lamb. So first of all, let's see sin for what it is. Sin is an attack on the Lamb. But there really is a second point we're to see here as well. And it's another reminder that we need in our fight. It's this. As alluring... As her seduction is, as alluring as the prostitute's seduction is, and here again, we might include the things I've mentioned so far, though we can include more riches, fame, sexual morality, and so on. The end is self destruction and judgment. As alluring as her seduction is, riches, fame, sexual morality, the end is self destruction judgment. That is to say, I want us to remember two things when we think about sin. One, think about how evil it is. It's not neutral. When you pursue your lust or whatever it is you do, it's not just neutral or it's not just kind of bad. It's war against the lamb. See how evil it is. And then second, see how it ends. Though it looks seductive, though it looks great, though it looks very appealing on the outside, in the end, its end is self-destruction and judgment. This is shown in two ways in the text. One of them is shown in verse 14. All these are gathered together. Satan's plan to lead many to direct their lives toward war against the Lamb. And here's how verse 14 says it ends. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For he's Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called called and chosen and faithful. That is to say, if right now you're rebelling against the Lamb, you won't win. You won't win. If you think you want to stand before the Lamb in your sin on that final day, you do not. You're being deceived. But there's another way we see in the text that this message of sin's self-destruction is there. Look at verses 15 through 17. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated. Remember from from verse 1, this prostitute, she's seated on many waters. He now says, the waters you saw where the prostitutes seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. That's to say, her seduction is worldwide. There's not a people who, who are somehow in, just, just in, invincible against uh, temptations to, to seductive sins. It may look different in different cultures. It may look different with the people Casey's dealing with in Peru. Their sins and their seduction may look different than the sins of seduction that we see in the United States. But in the end, it's the same reality. The harlot has has influence over all the world. She seated on the waters who are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. But listen then to what 16 and 17 say. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. Now, why in the world would they do that? I mean, just stop and answer that question. Haven't we said the beast seems to be in collusion with the harlot? Shouldn't a beast mourn if the harlot is judged? Yes. In fact, in chapter 18, what we're going to read is the whole world lamenting over the destruction of the harlot. Well then, well then why? If they should be in collusion together and if they're going to mourn when the harlot's destroyed why is it then that the beast is going to destroy the harlot? Verse 17 For God has put it into their hearts to carry out His purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. Now what is the showing then? If the beast... And if the harlot are simply showing two aspects of one reality, what is it showing when one of them devours the other? I think what it's showing is this. Sin is self-destructive. And the reason sin is self-destructive is because this is the judgment of God on sin. That is to say, one of the ways we see the Lord's judgment manifest in this world is when our sins destroy us. And that's what all sin does. So one of the messages then being given to his church in Revelation 17 is, Remember, if you chase after the seduction of the woman, you're going to destroy yourself. And you're going to face the judgment of the Lamb. You're going to face the wrath of the Lamb. These are things we need to remember as well. Everything we do that is sin is self-destructive. Everything we do. Again, name the sin. By definition, it is self destructive because this is the design of God. Who's the woman? The seduction Satan uses throughout the age to lure us and tempt us to go after things that are idols, whether it be riches or fame or power or sexual morality or the like. This is one scheme that Satan uses. What do we need to remember? We need to remember that that these things that look so alluring are really in a direct assault on the Lamb. We need to remember that they end in our self-destruction and they'll end in judgment ultimately if we chase after them. Therefore, what do we need to do? I don't have these on the slides, but let me end this morning with just three brief words of application. What do we need to do then in light of the message of Revelation 17? Number one, hold fast to the gospel. Hold fast to... The gospel. Remember Paul says to the Galatians, they were justified, they were made right, declared righteous before God, not by doing good works, but by their faith in Jesus Christ. And they asked them this question. If this is how you begun, then why are you trying to go at this point in your life a different way? That is to say this. If you were justified by looking to the gospel in faith, then why are you trying to grow in your holiness and become sanctified by doing something else? This is your key. Look to the gospel in faith. Hold to the gospel. You say, I I just want my heart to desire holiness more. Well, then what is the fundamental thing you need to do? Look to the gospel. Remember, Jesus Christ lived for me, died for me, was raised from the dead on the third day, so if my faith is in Him, His righteousness is credited in me. There's nothing else in all the world that will drive your heart to want to obey God more than that truth. So meditate on it and hold fast to it again and again and again. And how do I fight my sexual morality? How do I fight the temptation to want good body image? Hold on to the gospel. That's number one. Number two. And number two just applies to us as we've chased after this sin. I'm not under any delusion that you or I have avoided the very things that Jesus is warning against here. Right? John, who wrote the book of Revelation, also wrote in another epistle, I write these things to you that you may not sin. And if you do sin, when you sin, remember, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So I know we all may be sitting in this room right now and say, I see this, I see how I should be repulsed by these sins. I see that I should see that these sins are self-destructive and lead to God's judgment. But the reality is, I've chased after the prostitute. Right? Maybe that's where we are this morning. Maybe we sit here this morning, say, "You want to know how my week has been? I've chased after what the harlot represents. I've seen the seduction of sexual morality, and I went for it." And if that's the case, then application number two is run toward the crucified and risen Lamb. Run toward the crucified and risen Lamb. One of the devices of Satan is he not only lures us towards sin, come on, it's good, come after it, come after it, come after it. But then once we do, he steps aside and says, you're guilty, you deserve death and you deserve judgment and you deserve hell and you deserve the wrath of the Lamb. He lures us in and then he accuses us. And so one of the things we need to do this morning is not only hold fast to the gospel, but if we've been lured into sin, we've chased after our own passions, that one of the things we need to do as Satan's accusing us is say, yes, 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 Satan, I deserve death, and I deserve hell, and I deserve judgment, and I deserve wrath. I don't deserve even to be acknowledged as a servant of the Lord much less than that do I deserve to be acknowledged as God's child but I have news for you though wrath in God should be my due portion I'm never going to see it because Jesus Christ died for me and Jesus Christ was raised for me so this morning in your sin if you've held on to it if you're in it right now repent don't run from the lamb Flee from His wrath by fleeing to the crucified and risen Lamb. And I've said it so many times, so I just want to say it one more time. Don't repent of your sin and run toward doing better. Don't do that. Repent of your sin. Run to the crucified and risen Lamb. And then that leads to number three fight sin and pursue holiness with every ounce of your being. Fight sin and pursue holiness with every ounce of your being. After you've meditated on the gospel and you're understanding, I've turned from my sin, I've run to Jesus Christ, I've preached the gospel to myself until it sounds too good to be true and I know it is true, then after you've turned from your sin and you've run to the crucified and risen Lamb, then, because of the righteousness you have in Christ, fight sin and pursue holiness with every ounce of your being. I think this has to be our response to Revelation 17. Satan has a device, a weapon, a tool, and she is seductive. And all of us in this room have fallen prey to her seduction. Some of us in greater degree than others, but all of us have fallen prey, haven't we? So this morning, as we come to the table, don't let this be just how we end our service. Let this be a visible picture to us of our response to this text. As we take this bread and and take this cup, let us be saying we're holding fast to the gospel. As we take this bread and take this cup, let this be our way of saying I'm repenting of my sin and I'm looking to the crucified and risen Lamb for my hope and my forgiveness and my power to obey. As we take this bread and we take this cup, let us hold fast saying, this is my proclamation, that because Jesus Christ has died and been raised for me and justified me, by His grace I'm going to pursue holiness and fight sin by the power of the Spirit being fueled by the Gospel. If you're a believer, you professed your faith in Jesus Christ, you're in good standing with a local church, an evangelical church, we want to invite you to join with us this morning in making that proclamation. If you're not a believer this morning, then the bad news is that when Jesus Christ the Lamb pours out His wrath on His enemies, if you've never repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you're going to be one of those enemies taking His eternal, tormenting, terrible, merciless wrath. But the good news is you can turn from your sin this morning and by faith in Jesus Christ who lived and died and was raised be reconciled to God. If you're not a believer this morning, don't come to the table, but do come to Christ. Profess then your faith in baptism and then join with us week by week as we come to the table. If you're not a believer and you want to talk to me or, or somebody else after the service, please go to someone and say, I just want to know that I have been reconciled to God. I want to know the gospel. I want to know how I can be saved. We would love to talk to you. Let's take a moment of silence now at this time as the ushers and musicians get in place and then we'll come to the table and celebrate the gospel this morning.